Amen. If you wouldn't mind taking the word of God, please, with me tonight and turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 3. Exodus, chapter 3. Thank you for your good singing. Once again, that is a tremendous, tremendous hymn. Exodus, chapter 3. And we'll begin reading with the first verse. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed." And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet. For the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt, And I have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know, I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large unto a land flowing with milk and honey unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me. And I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly, I will be with thee. And this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say to them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial unto all generations. And the reading, God's word there this evening. 
Let's seek the Lord's face for a brief word of prayer. Father, we think of the awe and reverence with which Moses approached thee. He hid his face and was afraid. He took off his shoes because he was standing on holy ground. And Lord, you are so holy. Lord, we pray that thou wouldst impress us with a sense of your holiness, of your greatness. That we would put the shoes off from our feet. And that we would put the sins of our souls away from us to approach thee. Lord, open thy word. Bless thy people for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Now I'd like you to draw your attention this evening to verse 14 in particular. The Bible says, And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And then he repeats this, and he said, That shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. Now this I am is the explanation of what the name Jehovah means. In verse 15, God says unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord, God of your fathers. Now notice the Lord is in caps. I'm sure we've heard before that when the authorized version does that is because it is the Hebrew word Jehovah. The Jehovah God of your fathers. And Jehovah comes from this root meaning to be or I am. I am that I am. Hundreds of years have passed and the Hebrew people are still in bondage to Pharaoh at this time. And the question, no doubt, that haunted them was this. Where is God? Have his promises failed? Will he never make good on his word? Where's God? He said this to, to us, but everything that we can see seems like he's left us in bondage to Pharaoh. They knew the promises, I assure you, that were given to Abraham, such as Genesis chapter 12. And I will make of thee a great nation, I will bless thee, and make thy name great, thou shalt be a blessing. That didn't look like that was happening at this time. Genesis 15 and verse 5, And the Lord said to Abraham, Look now toward heaven, Abraham. Tell the stars if you be able to number them. And he said, So shall thy seed be. There can be so many that you can't even number them. But right now they're under bondage to Pharaoh. They're being beaten. They're under cruel, terrible taskmasters. And it was tempting to believe that God had forgotten them that God would never fulfill His Word. But it was at this very time that God heard the cries of the Hebrews and He raised up a deliverer. And we all know who this deliverer was. This deliverer's name was Moses. Typically, Moses is a picture of a fearless leader, of a great man of God who stood with courage before Pharaoh and led the people of God to the promised land. But the amazing thing is, is that when God approached Moses, he was flat out terrified. And that's when we feel perhaps a little bit more like Moses is like us. You see, Moses was a human, was a man, just like you and me. 
And when God approached Moses and God said, Moses, I have a great work for you to do. Moses says, oh no, look at me, I'm not able. He says, Lord, I don't know what I'm going to say to them. Then he says another time, I can't speak. God says, I will be with you, Moses. I'll be with you. And perhaps one of the most difficult questions that he asked the Lord was this, or one of the most fearful things that came to his mind was this. When I go to the Israelites and I tell them that God has spoken to me and sent me, what will I say that your name is? Or what will I say to them to make them believe me? Because here you have been in bondage for years and years and years and years and and I'm, I'm just a man coming to them saying God has spoken to me. What will I tell them? They're not going to believe me. They're not going to hear anything I say. They don't, they're not going to believe me. Lord, what will I say to them? What will I say that your name is? And that's when the Lord says this. Tell them that I am. That I am. Now why did the Lord say this? Out of the burning bush, I am. This is the significance. Tell them that what I was previously, I am presently. And what I am previously and presently, I am always. I am. So to the Israelites, he's saying this, as he says in verse 15, the God of Abraham, I'm still your God. The God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, I'm still your God. I haven't changed because I am. And although it looks like I've forsaken you, although it looks like my promises won't come to fruition, I am. I am. I am that I am. I am what I am before this world was created. I am what I am today. And I am what I am for eternity. You see, the reason why God can never change, which you say immutable, He can never change, is because God is. God is. And we've been doing a series in the evening on the attributes of God. Tonight I want us to consider perhaps the most basic of all thoughts and the first step in considering who God is from Scripture and it is this God is God is I am I am the first thing that we learn from this name I am and how God self describes himself is that God existed before anything. God existed before anything. My parents tell me that when I was around five years old, I asked them, if God made everything, then who made God? And you know, they act like I was some genius because I asked that question. But you know that most children at some point will ask that question. If God made everything, who made God? Who made God? You see, for us, everything that we know has a beginning. Everything that you can think of, everything that you have experienced in time 
on this earth in your life has had a beginning and will have an end. You were born. You began one day to speak. You began one day to walk. Your job had a beginning. It will have an ending. The tree that's growing right next to this building, it had a beginning. A seed fell and it grew. It began. Everything that we know of and experience in this world has a beginning. And therefore, it is really impossible for us to fully conceive something or someone that simply is, that has no start, that has no beginning. You see, the truth is from Scripture that when God says, I am, it means God existed before anything existed. He existed before cities, before civilizations, before empires, before kingdoms. He existed before mountains, before valleys, before the oceans, before the universe, before people, before souls, before darkness. God is. He existed in the silence, but not the emptiness of eternity. The Trinity alone existed in perfect bliss and perfect joy and an unsurpassing glory. God simply is. And this brings us to the thought of the origin of, of life itself. People say there's no God. Well, if everything has a beginning, if everything must begin and then must end, if you trace everything back to a beginning, you must necessarily have an endless stream of beginnings. If everything has a beginning, you're going from beginning to beginning to beginning to beginning, and thus you have infinity. And then you don't really have a beginning. There must be a being who has no beginning. That's the only way that this world could have come to be. There must be a being that is infinite, that is eternal, that has no beginning, that had no start. And that being is God. And this is what Jesus said when he speaks in John 8, verse 58, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. And the Greek words translated I am there are the same words used to translate Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, I am, in the Greek version of the Old Testament. I am. Jesus was claiming that he was God. And he was the God who revealed himself in the burning bush. And you cannot make any statement of more absolute divinity than I am. And Jesus says, note his words, before Abraham was, not I was, but I am. I am. There was no creator of God. God was not made. There was no designer of God. God was not designed. There was no growth in God. God did not grow. There was no progress in God. 
God is. You see, all things came into being through God. And the Bible tells us in Psalm 90 verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, of Christ, for by Him were all things created. And the word translated all things, it means it's like in a category. Everything that was created was created by Jesus. Everything that is in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And by Him all things consist. Everything that came into being came into being through God. There is no reality outside of God. The reason why we are is because God decreed we would be. The only reason why this world exists is because it pleased God to create it. God is. And because God is, and because He existed before anything, He will always exist. God will never cease to be. And I tell you lovingly, you can never escape God. For anyone who's not right with the Lord, that is a frightening thing. You cannot escape the God who is. There's nowhere you can run. There's nowhere you can go. He is. God is. And that means that He existed before anything. But second, from this name, the I am, or God is, we learn that God is dependent on nothing. I am. God is. Because God existed before anything, and He was existing in perfection, perfect when He existed, He's not dependent on anything. He doesn't need anything. Definition of dependent simply means this. When he says, I am, simply, God does not need anything. To be dependent can take a number of meanings. It can be said that something is dependent on something else because it is sustained by something else. I am dependent on food or I will not live. So are you. I'm dependent on air or I won't be able to live. When I was a child and you were a child, you were dependent on your mother or your father to provide for you, to take care of you. God's not dependent on anyone. doesn't depend on anything. God doesn't need anything. Paul made this clear in Mars Hill. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 25, he said this, Neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Seeing he gives to all life and breath and all things. The height of a wrong view of God is to think that God needs anything. He doesn't need anything. 
He doesn't need your worship. He doesn't need your obedience. He doesn't need your wealth. He doesn't need your possessions. He doesn't need your strength. He needs nothing. Nothing. In fact, he doesn't even need this whole world. He needs nothing. Um, we, we use the term, God is necessary. God is necessary. And what necessary means is something that must be. So follow me here. God must be. God is. God is. That means that God alone must be. God alone cannot be otherwise. God alone is unavoidable. God alone is indispensable. God alone must exist. You realize that nothing besides God is necessary. We did not need to be to add any glory to God, to add any perfection to God. Only God is necessary. We are simply contingent, meaning we could have been or could not have been. Not please God to create us, but God did not need us. He needs nothing. And this brings us to the question, well, if God didn't need anything, then why did He make us? Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11 gives us the answer. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Do you want to know why there is a universe? Why there are human beings? why there is history and why there is time, it is simply this, because it pleased God. It's really not revealed to us beyond that it pleased God and it brings Him glory. The Bible says in, in Romans 9 that God, if He was willing to show His wrath to make His power known, he could endure with much long suffering vessels of wrath fitted to destruction that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. So he's saying he wanted to make his power known. He wanted to make his mercy known. It pleased God to create a world of human beings, a theater upon which he would make known His glory. He would make known all of that which He is. And that He would make beings that were made in His image, that would find their joy and their adoration in Him. And in seeing His glory, would dwell with God forever in perfect joy, worshiping Him. That pleased God to show His love and His mercy and His holiness and His power in creating this earth. Someone might say, I don't like the way God did it. Don't take this as a cop-out, but He doeth all things well. I can't explain to you why God did what He did, but I can tell you that what He did is right. 
Look at Christ on the cross and you see the greatest show of love that has ever been shown. And I promise you that the same God of love who sent His Son to die was moved to make this world. God does all things well. He's never unjust. In demonstrating His power and glory and judging sinners, He's not unjust. No, 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 no. Man chose. Man chose. Man chose to be where they are. He's not unjust. God is so everlastingly wise that He created a world in which upon the backdrop of brokenness, of sin and suffering, He could demonstrate His glory. And He did it all. And still was just. His wisdom is absolutely unbelievable. God did not need it. It pleased Him to create this world. God depends upon nothing. He doesn't depend upon anyone for His will. Isaiah 46 verse 10, Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand. I'll do all my pleasure. God doesn't depend on anybody to accomplish His will. No one. Now he's pleased to use instruments such as men to accomplish his will. But nobody is necessary except for the fact that God has decreed that they would be used to accomplish his will. He doesn't depend on anybody. You think, for example, of the work of missions. I've heard many a sermon about missions where somebody would get up and preach and they'll say, now you know there are, there are millions of people in the Middle East. They're going to hell. They're in the black darkness of Islam. That should break our hearts. They're lost. They need somebody to go tell them about Jesus. They need somebody to bring them the gospel. And if we don't go, they'll be lost. If we don't go. But if we did go, they would be saved. And oh, imagine if more of us went, there would be so many more that wouldn't go to hell. But because of our failure, thousands and thousands and thousands go to hell. Even though God is trying so hard to save them. Now there is some truth in the fact that we must go or they will not be saved. But you must understand something. God doesn't depend on anybody for His will. He will save His elect. And every tribe and tongue and nation, nobody will resist His will. Nobody will stop Him. He will save. He will send someone. He will redeem them. No one will cause the blood of the Lamb of God to not avail. No one. And so then the question comes, well then, where's our burden for missions? Where's our burden for missionary work? Are you saying that we don't have to do anything, that God is going to get His job done without anybody? No. He uses me. He uses you. And the confidence that we can have is that as we go, we know 
that we will not fail in the purpose for which God has sent us. And that no matter how dark it might be, no matter how engrossed in heathen darkness people might be, that God will save His people. And you'll find something if you go to the mission field, I'm sure, that the people aren't rushing to hear the gospel many times. And you ask, why am I there for God, for Jesus? We're there for the people. We want them to know Christ, but we're there for Jesus, for Christ and His glory. He doesn't depend on us. And that changes perspective with regards to missions. The man or woman who is a missionary should not be motivated with the desire to rescue God from a difficult situation. I'm afraid that there are missionaries, unfortunately, in some churches that are being raised up and going to other countries and lands to rescue God from a difficult situation. To rescue God from a, from, a, from a situation where He's wringing His hands in heaven saying, Oh, I want to save, I want to work, but no one will go. No, God will save everyone for whom Christ died. And I just like the joy of being a part of that. That's the thrill of our soul. That we are a part of the victorious march of the gospel to save people from every tribe and tongue and nation. That is the motive. That we have a God worth glorifying who will save everyone for whom Christ died. Jesus Christ depends on no one to accomplish His will. No one. And that should give us an even greater motivation to go. If that makes us stay, we've completely missed it. But God is dependent upon nobody for His thoughts. God does not need anybody to seek counsel from. God does not need any source of information from which to glean more info. God knows everything because He is. God is. God does not depend on anyone for His power. He doesn't lean on anyone. He's not sustained by anyone. He needs no help from anyone. He is absolutely independent in His power. Everything, then, is dependent on God. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, we find who being the brightness of His glory, speaking of Christ, and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, upholding all things, Everything is upheld by God, by Christ. We find this said by Paul, as we already mentioned in Colossians 1 verse 17, and by Him all things consist. Everything coheres in Christ. Everything is sustained. Everything is held together. Every atomic particle in creation, every part of nature, every natural law, the growth of a seed in a distant forest to the power of a mighty hurricane everything is sustained and upheld by Christ there is not one beat of your heart not one breath of your lungs 
as your body heaves in and out that is not absolutely and totally dependent upon God. You must understand, God holds your very existence in His hand. The only reason why you exist for one more moment, the only reason why your heart beats one more beat is because God is upholding you. Because Christ is holding everything in which everything consists in Him. Everything is upheld and sustained by God. Isn't it amazing? That the very men who crucified Jesus were sustained by God. They could not have even crucified Him outside of God sustaining them. A victim? No. A victorious Christ. He was victorious. And you remember He said, I am in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the soldiers fell back. He was no less the I am on Calvary. In fact, on Calvary, he was perhaps more fully manifested as the I am than any other time in all of human history. There is more power displayed on the cross of Calvary than any other place. He is God. Is I saw a t-shirt the other day that said, Be your own hero. I don't know if you've ever seen a t-shirt that says that. Be your own hero. How foolish is that? You can't even breathe one more breath without God. Be your own hero? What are you talking about? You're nothing. We need to be abased in the dust before God. This is why in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah saw the glory of God, he said, woe is me. And in Exodus 3, Moses, he hid his face because he was afraid of God. We need to be abased in humility before the God who is. And you know what the gospel is? The gospel is a call for you to grasp that you are dependent upon Him fully. It's like a no help wanted sign. The gospel is not a help wanted, it's a no help wanted sign. God doesn't need you. He saves all by Himself. He is our hero. God saved fully through Jesus. And there is not one iota that needs to be added to anything Jesus did. We are fully dependent upon Him. And so it is absolute insanity for somebody to live in rebellion against God. God will bring you into account. And man, if you try to continue to rebel against God, you mark my words, the God who is may just decide to stop you dead in your tracks. He may just decide in a moment to stop your heart from beating and a moment to stop your breath from breathing. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that is why the most important thing on earth is to cast yourself 
fully on Jesus. You're the dust of the earth. You're nothing. Cast yourself on Him. That's the call. And that's not just for salvation. That's for every day. Believer. Self-dependent believer. Trying to fight sin in our own strength. Depend on Him. The God who is. Depend on Him. And the third and last thing that I see from this word I am, the fact that God is, not only that God existed before anything, God is dependent on nothing, but last, God is supreme over everything. God is supreme over everything. You see, if God existed perfectly before everything, and He depends on nothing, then He is absolutely supreme. He is supreme. No one can stand before God. All of the nations of the world, the Bible says, are like a drop in a bucket. Have you ever carried a bucket full of water? Maybe you ran down to a creek or something. You carried a bucket full of water and you ran it up to the house and just one little tiny drop ran down the side. Did you care about that one drop? I don't think so. And God says, all the nations are a drop to me. They're nothing. He's supreme. Absolute. God is. All the armies of the earth cause God to laugh. Because God is totally supreme. And think about this with me for a moment. If everything finds its beginning in God, in other words, if everything good that we know in this world finds its beginning in God, then God is the highest form of that. God is a purest form of that. It's like if you were trying to find gold and you found gold in a stream. If you followed that stream all the way up to the source, you'd find pure gold. And God is the pure gold. You see, in Psalm 19, the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God. But what are the heavens shouting? The heavens are shouting this. God is greater than us. God is greater than us. God is supreme. God is. You think the mountains are majestic. God is majesty. You think the sunset has beauty. God is beauty. You think there is glory and pomp and the riches of a king or an emperor on this earth. God is glory. He is the supreme king. You hear a piece of music and you say, oh, the harmony. God is order. God is harmony. He's the power of the waves of an ocean. The strength of men. And you say, wow, what strength, what power. God is power. Do you see mercy in the world? Mercy in somebody giving, treating someone with mercy. God is mercy. You see love, God is love. You see joy, God is joy. You see peace, God is peace. Everything good 
everything wonderful, everything that you would desire on this earth that you have ever known. God is that. He's the supreme. He's the fountain from which everything comes. He's the purest of the pure. Nothing is greater. Nothing is more supreme than God. Nothing. He's it. He's the apex. He's it. There's nothing else. It's just God. God is. And if God is, believer, what is this life in comparison with gaining Him? Well, if I do this, I might gain some money. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Well, this sin gives me joy. He is joy. Well, doing this gives me notoriety or my friends think highly of me. But God is supreme. Why would we cast ourselves upon? Why would we spend our lives for anything other than God? Other than Jesus Christ he is absolutely supreme. I'm going to say a word briefly to suffering brothers and sisters. Suffering sister, suffering brother. Say like Paul, I count the loss of all these things, but dung that I may win Christ. It may hurt, there may be pain, there may be sorrow, but I want him. He is supreme. I will gladly part with my earthly things. I will gladly part with physical pleasure that I might know Him who is supreme. Say, gladly I will part with the things of this world that I may know Him who is supreme. Oh, that I might just win Jesus Christ. God is absolutely supreme. Oh, that we would know that. It's absolutely overwhelming to think about that God is. Oh, we sing the song, I am His and He is mine. Oh, what does that mean? I have God. I have God. I have the Supreme. What an overwhelming thought. And how worthy He is. Oh, that we would spend ourselves for Him. He's so worthy. He is absolutely supreme. God said to Moses, I am. God is. He existed before anything. He's dependent on nothing. And He is supreme over everything. God is. I trust that God will bless His word to our souls tonight. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, oh, we bless Thee. We come before Thee and we say, Oh God, who are You? Who are Thee? Who are You, Lord? We know so little of Thee. Oh Lord, You are so glorious. Thank You for Christ that we might know you.
Thank you for your mercy. You could have obliterated every one of us, cast us into hell, and yet you saved us. All we praise thee. Father, please bless thy people. Bless them this week. And they know thy presence, thy joy. For Jesus' sake, amen.